I am reminded afresh this morning as I look out to uh, still a bunch of socially distanced masks that October 22nd is this week. The day of supposed restriction lifting. And we'll see how that actually goes. But regardless, I'm reminded that there will be a day, a real day, when this will be in the past. And I'll actually see faces. And maybe I'll realize once the masks are down that uh, ye are just frowning at me while I'm preaching the whole time. And I don't think I'll even care. I'll just be happy to see some faces. It's exciting to think about. And as we continue to have um, just various things open up in society, we're trying to think as a church a little bit more about community. And if you manage to catch the theme of all those verses Adam just read, we'll be talking about our one anotherness today as a church. Now, usually when we study God's Word, we want to focus in on one text and really understand its context and its meaning because. The Bible is perfect, and I'm not. But sometimes it can be helpful to sort of zoom out in order to see the bigger picture. Like when you find yourself lost on some middle-of-nowhere country road in Ireland, and you need to go on maps and zoom out to see where in the world this road leads and how you get back to the motorway. In the same way, this morning, I want us to zoom out And look at all these passages where God is commanding his people just how to live the Christian life with one another. The phrase one another comes from the Greek word alelone, and it occurs a hundred times in the New Testament, 59 of which are in the form of a command to God's people. 59 times God commands us to treat one another a certain way as fellow Christ followers in a local church. One of the things I want us to take away, the first things, this morning as we zoom out and look at these, is I want us to see the sheer vastness of these commands. Even just reading these verses all together, we catch a bit of that, don't we? This isn't just some one-off command. Living with one another in community is not a side auxiliary or optional component to following Jesus. Christian community is central to the Christian life. It's central to how we follow Jesus, which is why the Bible speaks to it as much as it does and commands us to walk in it as much as it does. So let's pray one more time and let's ask God to help us as we meditate on these commands. Father God, we thank you for your perfect word. It's living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It's able to build us up and instruct us. So we thank you for it. We thank you that you are present with us this morning, able to teach us through your spirit, move in our hearts and soften our hearts. So we just confess our need to you this morning as needy children looking to our dad Would you help us to understand your word and be changed by it? We pray in your name. Amen. One of the dangers of preaching on a long list of 59 different commands in the Bible is that we might be tempted to wrongly read them as a long list of obligatory to-dos. 
Like, there's a lot of things in life that we just have to do in order to be well. Um, take cleaning, for example. I don't particularly love cleaning. I uh, don't love doing the dishes. But um, I do them reluctantly because if I didn't, our house would be disgusting. There would be Lucy crumbs shoved into every possible surface. Is that what these commands are? Here's all the stuff you've got to do if you want to maintain a church. Almost like a church chore list. I'll confess that when I first became a follower of Christ, that's, that's what it was like for me. Like, following Jesus was about me and Jesus. The church was, I don't want to say a necessary evil, but it was, it was definitely an auxiliary chore for me. I would have been perfectly content if God called me to go be a hermit in the woods and study the Bible by myself the rest of my life. That was my initial concept of the Christian life. But over the years, as God's Spirit has changed me, sanctified me, matured me in Christ, I have seen how contrary to following Jesus that actually is. You see, when we're saved through belief in the gospel, we are transformed. We're born into something new together. If you're a believer here, you are no longer just an individual. When you accepted Christ, you were born into the family of God. Or another way you could put it, as Paul often says, as Christians, you aren't just individual members, but you are now members of the body of Christ. We saw this in our Romans text a few weeks back, Romans 12.5. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. That's that same Greek word used for our one another commands, alone, members one of another. Through belief in Jesus, you have been made one with God. And Jesus says in John 17, not just one with God, but also one with each other. This one-anotherness is part of your identity in Christ, beloved. So as we look at these commands, it's important for us to understand the lens through which we should read them, to understand why we do them and how we do them. We are commanded, beloved, to treat one another a certain way as believers in a local church, not as an optional chore, but because of our identity as sons and daughters of God. We love one another a certain way because the Godhead that we are born of loves each other a certain way and loves us a certain way. Open up to 1 John chapter 4. Or, uh, yeah, please do that. I'm going to be running through quite a few verses this morning, so we're also going to have them up on the screen. 1 John chapter 4, and let's look at one of these one another commands and see this at work. Starting at verse 7 of chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another. For, or because, love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 
Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now John here is writing to these believers and is teaching them how they can test themselves to know whether they are in Christ. And John's logic is this. Just as he taught from Jesus' words in the Gospel of John, that in order to enter God's kingdom, we need to be born again. We need to be born of God. And one of the proofs that that has happened is our love for one another as believers. Why? Because God is love. If God is love, and we are born of that God into the, fam- into the family of God together, then one of the proofs that that has happened is our love for one another. Okay? He then goes on to describe what that love should look like. Verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest or made visible among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This love of God that we are born of and now called to show one another isn't love as we see fit to define it. Which is really important for us to hear, because it's easy to say we love one another, but then define what that love looks like on our own terms. But John says the kind of love we're talking about was exemplified in the gospel. This isn't lip service, surface level love. No, gospel love is the kind of love that sacrificially sends his own son to a people that don't deserve it. Gospel love leaves comfort and security. It draws in close. It willingly takes on hardship. It's intimate. It's active. Gospel love doesn't love because it's deserved or reciprocated. It loves when it's undeserved. This love at work in us is not the world's version of love, nor is it our own concept of love. It is God's version of love. Love as the gospel revealed it to be. John goes on, verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Ought to Not like you ought to clean your house or it'll be disgusting, but ought to as in, if two people have a child together, that child ought to look like them. If it doesn't look anything like them, then you're asking, whose kid is this, right? If we are born of this God together, filled with the spirit of this God together, then we ought to love one another like this God together. Okay, and here's my point that I want us to see. Our love for one another happens because of our identity as God's children. This isn't a chore. This is who we are now as brothers and sisters of God. It's our DNA makeup now together as his children. We can't claim to love God and then have nothing to do with 
one another. It would be like a salmon saying, I'm a fish, but I don't breathe underwater. This is not possible. God's Spirit won't let us do that. But we also see here how we love. We don't love with our own version of love. We love in the way God loved us. Love is the way that gospel displayed it. So our identity as God's children is why we love, and it's how we love. It's the reason we love, and it's the recipe for how to love. So with that lens, let's, let's zoom back out. And when we zoom out and we look at all these one another passages, we observe some themes almost right away. Most likely caught your eye, there are quite a few commands to love one another. In fact, over 25% of the one another commands have to do with directly, uh, directly about loving one another. About a third have to do with unity, being one with one another. Commands like be at peace with one another, accept one another. And if I could categorize the rest of the commands neatly, I would sort them into two more sets of commands. Commands about edifying one another and commands about serving one another. All right, so four categories. And we're going to look, uh, work through a few verses from each one of them this morning. Love one another, be one with one another, edify one another, and serve one another. Let's stay with that uh, love set of commands for a moment. <clears throat> and through that lens that we saw in 1 John, let's look at some other verses. John 15, 12. Now we can hear it from Jesus directly. He says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So again, my commandment is for you to love one another just as I have loved you. We love because he first loved us. And then he again defines love. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Love one another, church, with sacrificial gospel love. Not with superficial, surface-level love, but with the kind of love that would make you lay down your life for the person sitting next to you. John 13, 34 through 35, Jesus again says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love. For one another. Again, love one another just as I have loved you. And this time, adding that this isn't just for us, but our love for one another has another purpose. It is God's mission to the world. That God's plan is that the world would look on us and not see worldly love at work in this church, but gospel love. The kind of love that displays the good news of Jesus. Sacrificially loving one another. 
wholeheartedly accepting and forgiving one another just as we are. And the world would see that and say, I want that. Turn with me to a writer other than John. 1 Peter 1.22, or 1 Peter 1.22. Peter says it this way. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly, or love one another deeply, from a pure heart, since you have been born again. We can't be faking this. Church, love one another earnestly, deeply from the heart. Why? Because you have been born again. And the God that you have been born of loves deeply from the heart. Jesus showed us his love isn't cold and distant in the gospel. It's passionate. It's deep, it's sincere, it's emotional, it's powerful. In the same way, church, love one another. And if you're hearing that and you're thinking, I don't know if I have that level of love, be encouraged. God grows that in us. Early on in my Christian walk, I used to say things like, man, I just hate people. Christians are such a bother. But we serve a God that redeems. And he is absolutely changed by heart. And I am continually overwhelmed by the love that he gives me for his people. And so we pray, like Paul does for the church in Thessalonica. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. Last verse from the love camp. Romans 12.10. Reading from the NIV version here. It says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. The gospel shows us that God's love for us is devoted. It overcomes excuses, obstacles, hardships, offenses, and personal preferences in order to achieve its end. And so in this church, we love with devoted love. We don't give up easy. We put it at the top of our priority list and we devote ourselves to loving one another with active, purposeful, gospel love. Now, one thing that is sure to happen when you take a group of sinful, imperfect people and you call them into intentional community together is you're going to get conflict. This happens because we are sinners doing community with sinners, and it happens because we have a real spiritual enemy, and that enemy hates gospel community. And his go-to strategy is to divide, lie, and conquer. So it makes sense that about a third of these commands have to do with fighting for unity. But is that ultimately why we fight to maintain unity? 
Like it's just something we got to do to keep this church thing going. Listen to how Paul calls the church in Rome to unity in Romans 15, 5 through 7. I'm reading again here from the NIV just because it puts it a little bit more plainly for our purposes this morning. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Jesus Christ had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, this is not a chore to Paul. Paul says, our oneness has everything to do with God's glory. Paul's prayer is for this church to be one so that they may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our unity glorifies God. Why? Because we are born of God and we image God and God is one. He is, in his essence, a communal God, and we have been made to image him in that together. We fight to be one church because of our identity as God's children together. And how do we do that? Paul tells us that too in verse 7. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. And how did Christ accept you, beloved? Once you were all cleaned up and freed from sin, once your life was in order and you were easy to be around, no. He accepted you when you were at your worst. When you were still his enemy, Christ died for you. Christ accepts you and I this morning, beloved, even though our lives are still a mess. And Paul says, you want unity, church? Accept one another like that. See, gospel love humbles us, doesn't it? Gospel love gives us the opposite of what we deserve. We deserve God's judgment and eternal separation from him. He instead offers us complete forgiveness, acceptance, eternal nearness with him, a permanent place in God's family. And when I get that in my heart, that frees me and it fuels me to love you like that and for you to accept me. Even when I sin against you and disappoint you, conflict is guaranteed but God shows us the way through these one another commands, not, not just to work through conflict and arrive at unity, but to image God and glorify God in the process. Let's look at another. Philippians 2, 2 through 8. says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So Paul says, I want you to be one, therefore humble yourselves. 
and count one another more significant than yourself. Humility as a response to gospel love is essential to church unity. And again, Jesus shows us what humility looks like in the gospel. Starting at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Though he had every right to stay high and be served as the king of kings, he went low. And he served the lowly, the broken, the unlovable. And so, church, we humble ourselves to one another. We go low. And I know of no better way to humble ourselves and go low in a church of sinful people than to regularly confess our sins to one another. James commands us directly in James 5.16, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Here, that's not a command to confess to your priest in the confessional and then pretend like everything's all clean and peachy out here. This is confess your sins to one another. Oh, the power and the healing that is available to us, church, when we practice this. There is nothing more freeing to be fully known in God's family and still be fully loved and accepted. It's powerful to confess. And it's powerful to hear confession. In confession, we remind ourselves of gospel truth that God doesn't save perfect people. He saves sinners. And his mercy is unending. Or you could look at it this way. Jesus also commands us not to lie to one another. Colossians 3.9 Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. And you might be thinking, I'm actually not doing bad there. I haven't lied to anyone lately. But sometimes we can lie without really lying. Like we can present a false version of ourselves to each other. We sort of put on a mask and act one way on Sunday, but then we live a different way throughout the week. Or we, we really try to show the best versions of ourselves to each other, not really being honest about our weaknesses. And that's really just another form of lying. John says it like this in 1 John. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. 
So to have true fellowship with one another, we walk in the light with each other. We show our true selves to each other. We're honest and we're genuine. We go low and we admit our weakness to each other. We confess our sins to one another. And then on the other end, we are then commanded to accept and forgive each other. Colossians 3, 12 through 13. Paul says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. There's our identity again, our our reason to do this. Put on then compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, Here's our recipe. It's how we do it. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Or Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. The gospel beckons us to come as we are, confessing and turning to Christ to receive forgiveness and acceptance in him. When we forgive one another and accept one another as we are, we are ministering the gospel to one another. We mutually encourage each other with what's true for ourselves in the gospel. That because of Jesus, church, we can be fully known and fully loved in God's family. Let's use that as our bridge into our next set of commands to edify one another. And by that I mean the different commands given to build one another up. Commands like instruct one another, Romans 15, 14. Encourage one another, 1 Thessalonians 4, 18. Build one another up, 1 Thessalonians 5.11. Those are commands, not for the pastors, but for all of us. Paul says in Ephesians 4.11-12 that God raises the different leaders in the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. All right, so it's the leader's jobs not to do the work of ministry themselves, but to equip all the members to do the work of the ministry. That is, building up the body of Christ. Now, if you're like, that's great, but I don't know how to do that, that's okay. Let's let the word equip us with a simple way to do that this morning. Paul continues in verse 15. And he says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. We do the work of the ministry. We build one another up by speaking the truth to one another. Gospel truth. Which means, as we talk with one another, we eventually move past just surface-level conversations about the weather or about what we've watched on Netflix 
Listen, I love talking movies, all right? But we also need to share our hearts and remind one another of truth, of what's true for us in the gospel. You can see this again in Colossians 3.16. It says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Okay, so teach one another, admonish one another, sing to one another. How? By the word of Christ. That is, with the good news of what Christ has done for us. Let me give an example. Several of these one another's are to encourage one another. But we don't encourage one another like the world encourages. We encourage with gospel truth. Back in the U.S., I used to work for the United States Postal Service. And I really struggled at times with how meaningless it felt. Just so repetitive in what you did every day. And I had crabby coworkers, and I had a boss that didn't value me at all. And I, when I mentioned some of that to my unbelieving friends, they said, man, get a different job. You're more gifted than that. You deserve better than that. That was how the world encouraged me. But when I shared my situation with my community group at church, this is how they encouraged me. I said, man, I'm really sorry that that's been tough. Hey, I just want to encourage you. For however long you're there, the Bible says that God has placed you there for a reason. Your boss might not value you, but, but your ultimate boss is God. And he values you so much that he gave his only son for you. And he's given you an incredibly meaningful job to go and make disciples wherever you are. What if you saw your true job as a missionary to those crabby coworkers? which is really what Jesus did for you when he pursued you, even when you didn't want anything to do with him. A simple encouragement from just a brother in Christ that absolutely changed my life. He encouraged me by reminding me what was already true of me. What was true for me in the gospel, and he applied it to my life. He edified me with gospel truth. All right, this is, this is all of our jobs. To each as he's able, to intentionally build one another, one another up to maturity in Christ. We're all commanded to edify one another because we're all members together of the same body of Christ. That's our identity together, church. And we do so with gospel truth. Listen, if the only encouragement you're getting is, uh, in your walk is coming from whoever's preaching that Sunday, then we're doing this wrong. We should see this at work in our conversations with each other, after service, in our Zoom calls, when we're in each other's homes. And if you're not doing it and you're not sure how to do it, like, that's okay. Let's just be honest about it and ask questions and 
figure out how and when we do this. Hebrews 10, 24-25 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And then lastly, God commands us in various ways as a church to serve one another. These are important for us to hear because, again, it's really easy to say, I love God's people, I love the church, but then practically have nothing to do with each other. And these commands remind us that the love we're called to isn't theoretical. It's put into practice by serving. The gospel shows us that God's love isn't just word service. He came down and served. He was physically present among us. He healed and embraced and ministered to and concerned himself with the needs of messy and broken people like us. Focus in on one moment with me in Jesus' ministry, John 13, 14. Jesus just got done washing the feet of his disciples. And then he says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And good news, Jason, you can put your shoes back on because I don't think he means literally. At this time, washing your feet was the everyday messy reality of life, living in a messy world. After walking outside on dirty roads in your sandals, when you came in the house, you would need to wash your feet in order to keep the house clean. Here's what I think Jesus is saying. Through belief in the gospel, we have been completely washed clean from the penalty of sin. That is over and done with if you are in Christ Jesus. You are counted completely clean. But we are still messy people living in a messy world. We still sin and are sinned against. And we still have all kinds of just messy circumstances in our lives. And here's the thing. Jesus doesn't shame us in our messiness. He gets down and cleans our feet with us. Likewise, we also ought to wash one another's feet. We all have messy feet. Messy marriages, messy work situations, messy habits, messy thoughts, messy finances. And Jesus calls us to enter into that, serve one another in all the messy stuff of life. The other side of that is, you need to be open and willing to let people serve you in your messiness which is often the harder thing because it's humbling. This is what happened when Jesus went to wash Peter's feet. 
And Peter says, oh no, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him and said, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. The gospel truth is that we all need to be washed by Jesus. And when we allow others to serve us in our messy lives, we remind ourselves and one another of that gospel truth. We can be easily deceived, church, into thinking that an independent Christian is a strong Christian. Independence is not strength. It's a weakness. Jesus' life showed us that when he was fully dependent on the Father. Apart from the Father, I can do nothing, he said. But he also made himself dependent on the disciples for ministry. And by doing so, he allowed the gifts of his disciples to be worked out in the everyday stuff of life with him as they served. Last verse, 1 Peter 4.10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. You have each been given gifts, beloved, given by God, empowered by the Spirit, not to serve yourself, but to serve the family of God in unique ways. Let us grow to be a church that uses those gifts to serve one another and be served by one another and all the messy everyday stuff of life. All right, so there you have it. The one another commands. Man, I think I just gave everybody scriptural whiplash there. So many texts. Denise is back there on the slides like, amen. I'd be surprised if you're not overwhelmed to some degree. We just went over a lot. In one sense, I wanted it to be overwhelming. I wanted it to be a little bit overwhelming because I wanted it to be obvious that actively living out our one anotherness is central to following Jesus. This is everywhere in the Bible. You can't just check out on this because our one anotherness is rooted in our identity in Jesus. Our God commands us to actively walk this out, church. These aren't suggestions. These are commands for us today. And do you know why he does that? Because it's for our good. We live out the one in others for God's glory, and we do it because of our witness, in the, witness to the world, but I also want you to get that he commands this because he loves you and he wants fullness of life for you. The gospel community is where we experience and express God's love to one another. He commands for our good. But then there's also a part of me that's wary of being too overwhelming in the sense that these commands would feel burdensome. 
Because I know talking about all the different commands to be in community with one another can be intense. So that part of me wants to remind us that, like, it's okay where you're at. We just walked through something really traumatic together <laughs> the last 20 months. None of us have been excelling over, uh, at this over the last 20 months. Many of these commands we haven't even been able to do, and some we still can't. Uh, did you hear how many commands there were about greeting one another with a holy kiss? Not HSE approved. <laughs> so just wherever you're at with this, I mean, all the grace to you. But I just want to encourage us, as I sense the Spirit calling us out of our individual bunkers and into intentional community together. I don't want this to feel burdensome because this is, this is exciting. It's good. There is immense purpose and joy found in living these out together. And if you're wondering, when are we supposed to do all these things on a Sunday morning? I'm with you. I don't think you can. Some of these commands, like encourage one another daily, are impossible to do if we're meeting together once a week. I think the best place to practice these one another's is in each other's homes, in each other's lives, in groups. Let me encourage you to take advantage of the three-by-three three thing that's going to be going on. Just an opportunity to be in each other's homes together. And that's a great launching-off point for us. And lastly, let me encourage you in the gospel quick. If you, like me, haven't obeyed these commands perfectly, good news. There's one that's done them for you. Jesus has loved you and his church perfectly with gospel love. He has come down as the suffering servant and broken down the walls of hostility between you and God. He has made you one with him. And he has edified you, putting his very spirit inside you to teach you all things. We aren't saved, church, through our obedience to the one another's. We are saved through believing in Jesus' obedience. If you have a simple faith in Jesus this morning, rest in what he has done perfectly for us as he graciously calls us to experience more of that love with one another. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your family. I thank you that you are the kind of God that invites broken people into the family of God together. And not just brings us in, but you pour your love on us. You put your very spirit inside of us so that we might be one with each other. God, I ask that you would bring your kingdom here. Pray that you would help us to live out that truth 
in our church. God, we need your, we need your help. We're dependent on that. You know exactly where we're coming from. So I just pray, Spirit, would you come? Would you help us? Would you lead us? Would you stir in us? Would you help us to love one another so that we might experience more of your love? We pray in your name. Amen.